a local apocalypse in the eastern Ukraine. We went there again, and this is what we can tell. In some villages, all houses are destroyed, without exception. Some tiny towns are practically wiped off the face of the earth. It will be a long time when a normal life will come back to these places. This is the result of Russian crime of aggression, cruel and senseless. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Oharkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who is heading international department at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We devote majority of your donations to help Ukrainian defenders and people affected by this war. Patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Okay, Tanya. So let's uh, let's describe to our listeners what we have been doing in Eastern Ukraine. Why we go there? We are going there quite regularly, and what we have seen. Yes, indeed. This uh, particular trip was extremely fruitful for us because we brought two cars to the Ukrainian army, two different troops, two cars in Kharkiv. And then we also brought two generators, one to, for the military and one for civilians, specifically in the village we already described to our listeners in one of our previous podcasts. Um, its name is Kamienka. Kamienka com- village completely destroyed uh, during this war by Russian shellings. Uh, before the war, there were 1,700 people living in this village, but now we we know two people from that place, and that people told us that maybe there are 10 inhabitants in this village. So we revisited this village, Kamienka, we brought a generator, and I have no words to describe the happiness we've seen in the eyes of those people who, who just seen this, saw this generator. It means for them that they will be able to have some light, but it also means that could be they could uh, manage to get some water because they have a um, they have a um, how you say it uh, they're pumping water pump, from the underground water, yeah. and in order to get the water from and the I underground they need will, electricity yeah. and i guess this guy will be able to 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 establish that and so it means that they will not be drinking water coming out of rain or snow so this is important so um yes L- let's add that we brought these generators Thanks to support of our friends, Heiske Shian and Sebastian Gobert. A French uh, journalist working in, in Ukraine for many years and Hale uh, Shian, who is a Ukrainian writer. And we also brought some financial support, first uh, collected by Lithuanian writers, by Pan-Ukraine, right, uh, to to the family of Volodymyr Vakulinka, cruelly killed by, uh, by Russian occupiers in uh, May. His body was... Uh, was found in September and it was identified in December. So he was buried in 
No, in November, and he was buried in December. In, in he was buried initially in that mass grave in, in a tomb right, in, yeah. in, in spring, then um, exhumated and identified. So, and why December. money is a great issue is because he has a son. Had son this, his son had a problem with autism, and so he has only his grand grandmother and grand uh, stepfather, grand step, stepfather in a way. And they they need money just to to try to, to for some treatment for this son because Vakulinka himself is no more here, and his wife is uh, has a handicap, so she's unable to um, to to help him. So, and another financial aid we also organized thanks to some people. Uh, one of them is from Canada, who sent us, who watched and listened to our story about uh, Nina, a woman called Nina, from the village called Karobochkina. This is a 82 years old lady uh, who survived after her house was severely bombed by Russian shellings once again. So the house is destroyed. She's living in a what 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 we call here in Ukraine summer kitchen in a small, really small house. And she has no, has, she had no gas. So she needed just a, a modest sum of 250 dollars approximately to restore this connection to gas. So we were able to collect this money. So we brought this money to the family, to the mayor of this Krobochkina, and we just gave her so they will organize things. And this old lady, uh, 82 years old, will be able to cook in her summer kitchen without using balloons. So physically it will be much more convenient for her. So extremely fruitful uh, trip for us, but extremely, at the same time, extremely painful impressions from several places. Yeah, so we brought this help to uh, Nina thanks to uh, several donations. So we helped this, uh, we thank these donations. If you want to participate to join our efforts to help uh, civilians and Ukrainian soldiers as well, you can send uh, your donations to PayPal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com. This you will find it in, in the description of this podcast. So uh, the cars, why we brought cars? Because the cars, we usually, we, we actually are bringing cars uh, for evacuation of the wounded. And um, we try to find those cars. Of course, they're not, not new cars. They're used cars. One is from 2006, I think. The, the other is from 2009, something like that. So they're old cars, but still uh, going quite good, quite well. Each of these cars costs between six and seven thousand euros. So we we kind of spent an effort uh, to to buy them, and uh, we we collect donations from different people. It, it it's like Ukraine is is an organism like that because there are some people who are collecting donations, others who are giving regularly these donations. But the cars are really necessary because they can help evacuate the wounded. And um, and usually these are pickups in which you just transform, you, you leave two seats, the driver's seat and, and the seat um, and next to him or her, and then uh, the whole other space of the car is transformed in a way that you can, uh, you can actually put at least two people, presumably two wounded soldiers there. It will be reformed in a kind of a little ambulance why why it is necessary why you need to 
by these pickups or jeeps uh, because, uh, of course, ambulance cannot go to straight to the front line, what we call the Tochka Null or Null, the, the, the point zero. zero. And uh, you need these mobile uh, pickups to go to the, to the front line to get the wounded and to uh, drive very quickly without, usually without any roads, of course, to, to the place where uh, this this person, this soldier, will be giving the first uh, the first uh, aid we and then brought, brought to the hospital. Yeah, we have frequently asked why Ukrainian state cannot afford this service for Ukrainian soldiers. The answer is quite simple: that Ukrainian state, according to to bureaucratic formalities, cannot purchase old cars. So, if Ukrainian state does so, it would need to buy new cars, branded cars. It will cost a, a lot of money because the average life of such a car is approximately approximately a couple of weeks because so uh, in the situation of intense shelling so these cars uh, are, are destroyed regularly or on a regular basis so that's why all Ukrainian society civil society but all Ukrainians participate in such uh, such a business and we do know a lot of initiatives who do the same so transporting cars uh, this is normal cars this is civil cars this is not a military cars this, they are not uh, uh, sp- designed uh, to do so but uh, we still can use them to save uh, lives of Ukrainian soldiers. That's why we are doing so. And yes, unfortunately, so we can be looking for a car uh, for several weeks through our friends who who are doing this and then, uh, you know, collect money for another several weeks and then bring this car. So it actually can take several weeks or one month. And uh, it can appear that this car will be, you know, shelled with artillery or with from drones, with a couple of weeks and um, and uh, and be destroyed very 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 quickly. So, but let's also explain. Let's also describe this moment when we we've seen that time the car we bought in for the previous time, right? So when we visited a military base in Slavyansk, we were able to see the car we brought. Uh, the previous time, and we are happy to see that this car is still in use, so it's still functioning, it's still helping Ukrainian soldiers. It was quite a dirty car because they are driving somewhere without, really without roads, and uh, Ukrainian military told us that they this car already saved another car, so um, pulling it out of the dust somewhere close to the point zero. Yeah, so let's 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 talk about first our trip, so that our listeners understand how how it's developing. Because we have been actually visiting the same places as we have visited one month ago, a little bit more than one month ago, uh, in early December. So we went to Kharkiv, Kharkiv, second largest Ukrainian city. Those of you who follow this podcast see that we visit, we are visiting Kharkiv quite, quite often, and we can compare different, uh, different Kharkivs. We we didn't visit it in spring, but we did visit it in 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 summer, when it was half empty. We did visit it in August when it, the 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 missile shelling was quite often and it was quite scary. At that time there, we visited it after the, the Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kharkiv Oblast. So in September, so we can say that now Kharkiv is, of course, much more vivid than it was in summer. Uh, we, many people were afraid that there will be lots of problems with electricity and heating. And of course, there are problems as anywhere in Ukraine. But we can say that 
those places where we stayed, electricity cuts are less often than in Kiev or in Brovary, where where we stay. Um, and um, and maybe another important detail: uh, a friend of ours uh, living in Kharkiv told us she lives in a Saltivka. In Saltivka, Saltivka, maybe the district of Kharkiv which suffered most, the most, uh, from this Russian shelling. And uh, when we ask her about her impressions, what 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 is changing? What is changing in the city now? Her response surprised us because she told us that there are a lot of people coming back to Saltivka now. So Saltivka, which is uh, presents a kind kind of apocalyptic uh, landscape in some places, not everywhere. Saltivka is quite a big uh, big uh, um, uh, place, and in some places people are back. So and even with children. So she said, I've never seen such a huge amount of people in Saltivka during from starting from the beginning of the war. So people are back in Kharkiv and we are we've seen uh, traffic jams in some places. It is dark as in Kiev outside, but yes, but but heating is here and electricity cuts uh, we were told that in some places they don't have electricity during six hours during a day. What is different from Kiev or from Brovary? We have, we have only six hours of electricity in here in Brovary. So, so that's the difference. So, uh, in a way, uh, Kiev infrastructure, electrical infrastructure in Kiev suffered maybe the most, even compared to Kharkiv. Yes, and uh, Kharkiv is trying to live its normal life. So supermarkets are open. You can find everything. You can you can buy wine. You can buy. Uh, all kinds of food, restaurants, some of them, well, are functioning quite well. What else? What else can be said? As you said, yeah, there are, there are many cars, relatively a big amount of cars uh, on the streets, and the cultural life is also developing. We, we reported about this uh, already several times. Now you go out of Kharkiv, and we went to the uh, to Izum, Izum direction, and uh, Izum is a place uh, from which we also reported several times. We also have a documentary about Izum on our YouTube channel of Ukraine World, and. Um, this horrible impression that we have still, because our listeners might know that Izum was heavily bombarded by the Russian army from the air, by artillery, by missiles, and and there is this impression of you know imagine nine floor buildings, residential buildings, uh, which were bombed from the air, and uh, those pictures you you might have been seeing from Dnipro, one of the latest tragedy when a Russian missile hit a, a residential building, a big residential building. This is something we also see in Izum. This is something we have seen in Borodyanka. So a big multi-floor residential building, when half of it is gone, it's just collapsed. And you can imagine how many people were under the ruins and died under the ruins. That That's what we have seen there, unfortunately. The bridge over Siversky Donets, uh, one of the key rivers of eastern Ukraine in Izum, is still destroyed. So there is a, a bridge, a kind of a temporary bridge, which is built near it. And you just cross it, this ponton bridge, you, you cross it and, and you go farther, farther east, east-south a little bit. And we have visited those villages that you mentioned already, like Kamyanka, 
Let's let's come uh, another detail about Izum. Uh, my impression is that if we compare with what was happening one month ago in Izum, my impression was that uh, Izum is coming back to life. Even if there are a lot of distractions still there, so nobody will reconstruct anything now in Izum. But there are a lot of people in Izum because uh, Izum is not just a city, so it's a very important town. It's logistic hub in a way because there are many roads and the railway here. That's why. Russians uh, were bombarding it heavily just because they wanted, really wanted to get it. And you see a lot of uh, shops. Uh, now they are functioning primarily maybe for military. Uh, we would also mention that there are a lot of military when you go out of Kharkiv. So in Kharkiv you have civilians, you have civilian cars, etc. But if you move out of Kharkiv, maybe maybe most of cars, most of people you meet are military. So there's a kind of military infrastructure there. So And I guess Izum is living out of these people present. I mean, military, they are buying things, they are doing things, they are present there. And you don't have this impression of a dead city. So there are some activity, even if this is not a normal activity. This is activity linked to the war, but in a way, Izum is is living now under Ukrainian control, and and it's profiting, if I, if I can use this word, profiting of the military presence. So there are people selling things, even food or whatever, for military. So it is. I would not say optimistic, because this is a wrong word for such a situation. But uh, I would say that atmosphere, the overall atmosphere in, in, in Zoom is less tragic as it was in September when we discovered all these mass graves and all this tragedy when the city was empty and the, and the real human uh, tragedies all, uh, were discussed all the time. Yeah, this is true. And Izum is really a very important city because it connects uh, three regions. It connects Donetsk Oblast, it connects Luhansk Oblast, to the, there is a road to the north, and um, it connects Kharkivsk Oblast, of course, it is It is in Kharkivsk Oblast. And um, we also visited the relatives of Volodymyr Vakulenka one, one more time. We transferred them the, the, the money given by uh, Lithuanian writers, um, they will need, of course, this money, as you mentioned, because Vitalik, the, the son of Vladimir Vakulenko, a writer who was killed by the Russians, is has this autist spectrum, and um, he's 15 years old, right? But his development is, is around six years old, and unfortunately, it, he doesn't speak. Uh, so the, the big question is who who can be who can take care of this kid? In in future, because he's now being taken care, but he's by his grandma and his step grandfather. And we discovered new details about Vakulinka's story, right? So, uh, his parents told us uh, when when we when we were driving through his place in uh, Kapitolivka. That's the exact name of the village they are living in, close to Izum a couple of kilometers from Izum, maybe eight kilometers from Izum, we saw flowers on one place of the road, just an impression. And then his mother told us that they know already the exact place where his body was found in May. And it was an investigative journalist from Suspilne who helped them to find this place. And they put flowers on that exact place just to mark the place where his body was discovered. We still don't know if he was killed close somewhere close to this place, it's just a road. Oh, 
which is more likely he was just left his body was left on this place after he was killed somewhere somewhere else we really don't know but the problem is the tragedy is that this body was discovered in early may right and uh, his mother and his stepfather they were traveling uh, quite frequently from Kapitolivka and from Kapitolivka to Izum, so they were crossing the same road all the time. And even once, as his stepfather explained, he found another dead body somewhere close. So there maybe was a, a, it was a common place for, for, for Russians to, to, to leave bodies, dead bodies there and then to call funeral service just to, to, to bury them. So that's the manner how these bodies were then uh, uh, in this forest, in the Zoom. But he wasn't present that day when they discovered Vakulinka, so they were trying to find him. And now his mother was trying to reflect why she stayed in the city, in occupied Zoom for all these long months. She was waiting for him to be back. And they just simply didn't know that he was found. They didn't know he was buried in Izum. And even when in September they found the graves, so, so everybody knew that there were graves, it took still two months more to identify the body. So at all the time, the body of his of her son was very close to the to her heart to their house, and then in Izum, in, in a couple of kilometers, and they knew nothing about that, and they still hoped that he is alive. And this is something really tragic in this story. Yes, indeed. The whole story is absolutely horrifying, because uh, Vakulunga was a writer uh, writing books for kids, and we have one of his books in uh, in our library. We didn't know him personally, but our daughter was reading his verses, and he was kidnapped and killed uh, just for being Ukrainian and for, for being outspoken Ukrainian and for, for supporting the Ukrainian cause. So this is, And of course, there are lots of other stories like this. Uh, maybe Volodymyr's story is one of the most known, but, uh, but there are so many other stories like this. So what else? Uh, the villages between Izum and Slovyansk, um, we visited them already, and uh, this was our second visit to the village Kamienka, as Tanya said. Actually, the village is completely destroyed out of maybe several hundreds of thousands. Everything is destroyed. It's It's really apocalyptic. As, as one of our friends said during the visit, is like, you're watching the movie like Mad Max, and you're, but this is not a movie. This is a real apocalypse. But still, people are living there because they, they find some tiny pieces of the houses which are not destroyed, and they are living there. And we visited this family just occasionally. We met them walking through this empty, destroyed village and, and just occasionally seeing a man in in next to one of the houses so this time we brought him them a generator uh, a good thing because i mean it, it gets dark very early uh, this time it gets dark about four o'clock uh, p.m four five p.m and uh, also these people are dependent on on electricity to pump the water and maybe to do some other things so they were Extremely happy, very much surprised when we told them that we just brought them a generator on gasoline. 
and we brought them uh, and we brought them gasoline as well so we we started this generator and we kind of uh, poured the gasoline we explained how it functions and he connected the the, the lamp and it's just uh, given the light and it was a very very big joy for them but uh, of course it doesn't solve all the problems because they are living in ruins and now we hope that he told us look but he can con- connect his instruments right now he can do some some things with with his electric instruments we hope that you know this will it, add it, add some more more things to his house more occupation and one more uh, advantage of uh, of this generator is that we could be connected because uh, the first time we visited them we just were unable to take a telephone number because uh, the telephones were not functioning so right now we at least have the telephone of his mother so in case so and we are sure that it will be able to charge the telephone so in a way you are resting without use you think about these people you've met a couple of weeks ago so you're just planning things for them as for example we planned with the generator offered by uh, Rale Shiyan and Sebastian Gobert. Uh, but we were just traveling without knowing if the people were still there. So we had no clear idea uh, will we find them or not. And now we will be able to call them to ask or they will be also able to call us and say, look guys, we uh, we need that or that so we need clothes or whatever and maybe uh, we will be able to help or ask somebody to help. So this is also important to be connected because when you live in such a distress completely destroyed village you are cut out cut off the civilization so it's also important to be connected yeah so then we moved forward we also visited the village Dolina and uh, also on this road is already in Donetska Oblast and it, it is also completely destroyed it seems that there were very very harsh battles there and Ukrainians were occupying Dolina Russians were occupying Kamyanka, so they first shelled Kamyanka, then they entered the village, then they they tried to encircle this conglomerate of cities, Slovyansk, Kramatorsk, moving from different directions, and they failed. Hopefully they failed, but it doesn't mean that they will not repeat. Uh, we've met militaries in, in Slovyansk. We also met military soldiers in, in Kharkiv, those people to, to, to whom we transferred the cars. Let's maybe explain, let's share some, some of what, what they have been telling us. So everybody from the military with whom we speak confirm that Russians are really now do not are not caring about the lives of their own soldiers. This is something absolutely indeed apocalyptic. This is something inhumane that uh, they are sending troops and troops and troops with small groups. They are being killed. They are sending again and again. And this is non-ending process. And it seems that some some prisoners, some Russian pr- soldiers who are imprisoned by the Ukrainians, they are saying that if... For example, a Russian soldier refuses to participate in this offensive knowing that he will be probably be killed, 90% he will be killed next day. He's shot on the place. And uh, they also confirmed that there are what what have been called Zagran Atriade in the Second World War, that there are people staying 
uh, and uh, Russian Russian soldiers, and that can be shooting those soldiers who retreat from the battleground. Well, at least this is what we hear from the soldiers who who, who captured prisoners and and what they have been telling. The second thing is that Russians, it's it's also true that they do not collect bodies of the soldiers on the fields, from the fields, even if they capture this territory. And that's so, even, even this is, even if it doesn't pose a big risk for them to be under fire, they capture it already a, short, a small piece of land, they do not collect these bodies very often. This is also something very, very horrible because, you know, the 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 idea that you collect the body and bury the body of your friend, of your relative, of your companion is one of the oldest idea in in culture. Let's let's remember the Iliad and when Priam, the the king of Troy, was going to Achaeans to get the body of Hector to bury him properly and asking Achilles to give him the body of, of Hector. So this is so much profound that you pay the last tribute to your dad by 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 collecting the body, by by burying him or by sending to to the relatives. And and this is something that still worries us a lot and uh, uh, we really rationally you understand it rationally we we try to explain in this podcast many times that there is something wrong in in the way how Russians treat human lives now the human lives of their own people not not only about Ukrainians but of their own people now or during the second world war or even early and early there is some some really very low attitude, very low esteem of, of human life there. Yes, exactly. And what is happening, uh, we are describing these new tactics and new be- new be- something new uh, anyway. It's uh, most probably linked to to the activity of Wagner Group because Wagner Group is a kind of different. So they are uh, most of times uh, prisoners so they don't regret these people. I would say that Probably in a regular Russian army, this is slightly different, but we also had that testimony that they are doing that in a regular army, Russian army as well. If you compare what was happening during the Second World War, for example, during the Kiev liberation by Soviets, so they 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 spent they wasted. Thousands of lives, uh, hundreds, four, hundreds of thousands. Four hundred thousand. Yeah. So half a million people. Of, half a million of, died just to liberate one city. So now we are talking about thousands. So the, this is a normal uh, behavior for that culture, which doesn't value human life as it is. So, but it is. It makes a problem f- for us because they. It is extremely difficult to face such an enemy because uh, just to discourage him, it's extremely difficult to discourage because they just don't care about the about the number of the of that. They don't care about the bodies. They don't care about their own soldiers because they have plenty of soldiers, so they can continue whatever they cause them. So this is uh, different. And we would say that Ukrainian reaction to it, I mean, between military, is quite. Uh, 
quite uh, pessimist, but pessimistic. So it's quite difficult. For example, why in Solidar they were still able to to progress this couple of kilometers, so they occupied Solidar recently, precisely because there were too many Russian soldiers and Wagner group soldiers who were advancing, so you are killing them, but they just don't care. So they are still able to to, to, to create this kind of this slow progress on the ground due to these tactics. And and you cannot use artillery against them because artillery is not effective. You will not face expensive artillery for for two persons or three or a group of four or eight persons as uh, normally uh, these groups of Wagner are advancing in such a small groups. So it's... It's a changing of stat- of tactics, and uh, Ukrainian troops will need some time to to invent something against this tactic. So, yes, um, not a lot of optimism between military uh, regarding these new tactics of Russia. Yeah, we have seen some 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 fatigue about, uh, among the military because they they're not subject to rotation. Many of them want to come back home and see their the children, their wives, their husbands. So there is, of course, we should understand that. And, and if you are, you know, have this image of heroic and brave Ukrainians, this is, of course, true. Uh, the Ukrainians are making the incredible, incredible resistance. But we should also understand that this is all, all very human and you can you cannot be this, you know, guy... A superhero all the time and and a, and a terminator or whatever else all the time or the robot these are these are just people like us soldiers these are absolutely the same people who who do not enjoy this war at all because they understand that this is their duty, but there is nothing nothing romantic in this war and uh we see that Russians have made this huge mobilization, and there are basically rumors that there will be a new offensive big offensive very soon we don't know where it will be and of course all this news that we get about certain delays of the arms supplies to to ukrainians are upsetting because we understand that russians have have been preparing very much to the new offensive and um um it is possible this the year of 2022 showed us that it is possible to defeat Russians, but you need to have bigger and and better resources. Let's talk about Slavyansk and Kramatorsk as cities, uh, because we visited three cities in this uh, in this place: Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, and also Svetogirsk. So, uh, um, Slavyansk and Kramatorsk—they are—they were popular. But I was in popular destination in this first stage of this war back in 2014-15. Many people were going there because these cities were liberated from the Russian army in the sum- during summer t- 2014. And there were a lot of uh, journalists there, a lot of international organizations. There were mm, a lot of international presence in these cities. And Kramatorsk became a, a kind of a capital of the region instead of Donetsk, which was occupied mm-hmm. And now our impression is uh, is pretty different because what you see when you enter Slavyansk and then Kramatorsk, you see once again uh, almost all cars you see on the road are military, so there are no civilians. 
Uh, they say yeah, that there are civilians. This, you cannot this, say that there are no, no I mean, civilians. I mean, the cars you see on the road. So it's most of them are military. So people are not moving so much. Uh, according to figures, official figures, which were um, given to us by uh, by volunteers from Kramatorsk, they say that approximately half half of inhabitants of Kramatorsk left. So out of 180,000 uh, before 2022, uh, they still have 80,000, 80, something like that, say 90 maybe, thousand. so half of the population had fled the city. And people are not walking in the streets. There are no, there are some shops for sure, but there are no no restaurants or terraces. So this is not like, a, it doesn't look like a normal city. Even if you compare to Kharkiv, I would say that Kramatorsk is a city, a town, as Slavyansk is, is close city. So the people are still there, but they are not walking a lot. And both of these cities, Kramatorsk and Slavyansk, uh, and, but mostly Kramatorsk are known for as a, evacuation hub so people volunteers are present on the on the ground and they are they were and they still are evacuating people from from Bakhmut from other uh, other villages close to Bakhmut and from anywhere if you want to go out of Donbass or you pass by Kramatorsk and uh, we also visited the place um, the railway station in Kramatorsk where this uh, horrible horrible uh, tragedy um, happened on the 8th of April 2022 when a Russian missile arrived to railway station and killed 61 person at the exact moment when people were trying to escape from the war because they were waiting for the train so it was a uh, so we visited the place and yeah, and yeah this is a tragic moment yeah 61 it's 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 really impossible to imagine the war, dozens of them died on the spot. There were fragments of the body everywhere. There was a mass of people waiting for evacuation train. And at this time, there was a Russian missile. There was an inscription on it, Zadite, so it means four children or the revenge for children. But this missile killed other children. And... Uh, this is really impossible to, to, to think about. And uh, some more people just died in hospitals. And, and the actual number is now 61. Imagine a, a missile strike and 61 person is, is, is dead. And this is something which is ha happening very regularly, unfortunately, in Ukraine. So coming back to Slovyansk and Kramatorsk, I would say that our first impression in early December were about Slovyansk were, wow, we didn't expect that. We didn't expect that the city on the front line is that vivid and there are so many people and there is, you know, some of the restaurants have been even working and um, we were quite positively impressed. And maybe this time... Uh, well, uh, our impression was still okay. It's it's not like a ghost town, both Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. They are living towns. There is probably one or two or three places you can eat, restaurants, not so many hotels. There are a few hotels in Kramatorsk. But, for example, schools are all closed. Kindergartens are all closed. So children who stay there, and we still should say that there is about 80,000 people in Kramatorsk living, 
So children who stay there need to only get online education. And very dramatic thing, Kramatorsk is one of the big industrial cities with its machine building plants, very big and sophisticated machine building building plants, especially for for mining, for all this stuff, really big machines. There are two plants, uh, Kramatorsk machine building plant and NKMZ, Nova Kramatorsk machine building plants. And we were told by the volunteers that they are closed, that they are not working, not operational. And there are really dozens of thousands of workers there. Why? Because, I mean, it is impossible when there is a risk of shelling and the front line is about 30, 40 kilometers from Kramatorsk. Not really reachable for artillery, but really reachable for missiles. And the missile, as we were told, we were were asked in a hotel, so what do you do when there is air 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 raid siren and the woman in the hotel told us look first we have the missile attack and then we have air raid siren because it's it's impossible to make the the time of the uh, of of the time of the arrival of the missile is maybe one minute maybe 40 seconds Yes, exactly. We experienced that in Kharkiv as well back in summer. So this situation we do know. So missile arrive first and then there is an alarm. Yes, I would also say that uh, once again, uh, this is a huge problem with these plants. And uh, I think this is no surprise that most of people we've seen, for example, in a restaurant, when you enter a restaurant in Kramatorsk, whom do you see the public there? You see military, because I guess that even people who are still in the city, they simply cannot afford a restaurant. So they eat in home, uh, but military, which are present, they have normal salaries, good salaries now. That's why they're present. That, that's why we see them. And people who are without work, it also means that they are without salary, right? So they're without money. So they, they're trying their best to survive. They're they're buying products, they're cooking at home, they're not going to restaurants. So, but um, yes, but uh, at the same time, uh, another important thing there is no almost zero international presence in Kramatorsk, which is a very regretful thing because a couple of years ago, during the first stage of this war, starting from 2014, all international organizations were in Kramatorsk, but now due to security standards, so they they just left and they there is no no people, no international people, and it influences uh, the knowledge about this situation. But it also influences economy of the city because uh, it is clear that the presence of different missions also influenced in a positive way the economy. I mean, commercial. Uh, aspect of yeah, the this is this is the question also about international organizations. Ukrainians are very critical of all of them, uh, UN agencies, all these humanitarian missions. Okay, these these guys can tell you that look, we cannot we cannot put at risk our workers. This is totally understandable. But you can hire the locals. You can hire the 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 Ukrainians who stay in the city anyway. <laughs> and uh, and just give them an, a, another status and how we and, and the volunteers who explained to us the situation they told us yeah look but uh, if they hire them then they should follow the protocol of the internal procedures and that means that they should leave actually 
So this is a stupidity of this international organization's bureaucracy, which is which which are not flexible and uh, which are you know pretend to be humanitarian organizations, but actually stay away from the from these places. I mean, Kramatorsk is 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 not a place where you have very big chances chances to die from from it's not Kherson by the way right we have been to Kherson and we, which is shelled regularly by artillery Kramatorsk well it is shelled maybe by missiles from time to time and uh, maybe this is a place where humanitarian international humanitarian organizations should be no they're not they have left and uh, the volunteers with whom we, we talked really have this sense, you know, of of being left alone, right? Um, but so maybe important one important thing about about Kramatorsk is that you really hear the combats out of when you are in Kramatorsk because uh, Bakhmut is in around thirty or forty kilometers out from Kramatorsk, and there is a fear, but not a, but a fear that if uh, if Bakhmut is really surrounded and uh, if uh, uh, Ukrainian troops will retreat from Bakhmut. This will, in a way, open the way for Russian troops to Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. So I would say that there is a kind of anxiety also in the city about that because you never know. So now Bakhmut is more or less uh, standing against uh, Russian troops, but you never know. So they can uh, resent another mobilized uh, uh, people there, soldiers there. So it would become worse. And that is why so it's 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 difficult to stay in such a city. Yes, indeed. But at the same time, it's 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 really nice to to be here. And uh, despite all the difficulties, you you still go to the railway station of Kramatorsk and Slavyansk, and you pick up a train, the express train, a very comfortable Hyundai, to Kiev, and um, you start at. 2.30 from Kramatorsk at 9 o'clock in the evening, you are already in Kiev with very comfortable conditions, very modern, uh, very modern train. So it is, there is still connection, this uh, civilization connection with, with the city. And the last city we visited, the last town is Svetohirsk. And Svetohirsk is a very well-known uh, town, both for as a religious place in Donetsk Oblast, but also as a recreation place and you have been there many times before the war can you describe what you have seen now compared to what you have seen earlier yes yeah, so the yirsk is uh, one of the most beautiful cities in the in donbass uh, people call it uh, um, switzerland in donbass because it's a really beautiful place with these pine forests and with mountains and with lakes and with rivers and with a beautiful monaster, monastery. And they have, they used to have a lot of uh, summer, uh, summer camps, summer centrums, villas, saunas, uh, uh, swimming pools, whatever in Svatohirsk. So it's a recreation. It was a recreation zone. And for many workers in Donbass, they spent a couple, several weeks during summer at that place 
I remember traveling uh, to Svatohirsk uh, and we were living in beautiful hotels and we were eating in beautiful restaurants and so and really lovely place and this time when we traveled to Svatohirsk uh, I had my heart broken because uh, I I can I can recognize I I, w- I was not able to recognize the city, the city itself is in ruins, completely in ruins. So all these beautiful buildings are in ruins. So intense shelling during many months in summer. Ukrainians were controlling this, uh, uh, say. Right, right bank, right of the Siversky Donetsk with Lavra part, and Russians were temporarily occupying the left bank. And this is, was a shelling, and the bridge is broken. And out of, uh, say, 4,000 people living there before the war, before the full invasion, there are a couple of hundreds now living in Svatohirsk. No bridge, no connection to, no direct connection to Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. Mm-hmm. Yes, but there is this ponton bridge. Yeah, ponton bridge. Part. Yes, but yeah, but but this is a really hard to see all that. They say that electricity was back a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. Uh, and that at the moment we visited it, electricity was no more there because of kind of uh, blackout. We don't know exactly. In some places, problems with running water, uh, heating, etc. We were able to meet a family who were back after 10 months of uh, traveling in Ukraine and even abroad, an old lady, uh, who told us a story. We, we started asking questions and she told us, look, I don't know a lot because I'm... I was back two days ago, so I'm just discovering myself. So and I can imagine somebody who left Svatohirsk 10 months ago when the war started, and full invasion started, and then you are back in your world and everything is destroyed. Um, I would say that it looks like um, it would take years to rebuild Svatohirsk, and uh, I'm, I'm even not sure that this is possible. It should be possible, but maybe this is not... Um, Contrary to Izum, in Izum you see the necessity of the Izum because it's logistic hub, so some people, even military, they need this city to do that or that. Svetohirsk, it was, it was, uh, it was a city for holidays, you know, and it would take maybe years for us to realize that we'd still, still be having holidays. So, uh, I would say that, uh, unfortunately, Svetohirsk will will need a lot of investment, a lot of intention, but uh, this reconstruction would happen le- much later than in other places in Donbass. Yeah, imagine imagine you you come to a place near the river. There is a mountain on the other side with this beautiful monastery cluster, and there is a pine forest and a recreation space. Where you you have been walking, you you could be walking through the pine forest. You could be swimming in a, in a pool. You could go to a restaurant. You could go to a sauna. And now it's just in ruins. Everything is is destroyed. The pines broken down, lying on 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 on, on the land. Uh, electricity is not there, and. Uh, very few people, mostly retired women, were riding bicycles. This is this is this is what we have seen. Unfortunately. Okay, so this was 
were our impressions from our trip into eastern Ukraine. Not very, not very optimistic, maybe, but um, this is what the Russian invasion is is living. And uh, sometimes there are places which look really apocalyptic, where everything is destroyed. It, it doesn't mean that all the Ukraine is like that. Don't don't take it like this. Uh, Ukraine is actually a country which is living despite the war, which is you know the streets of Kiev, of Kharkiv, of Lviv are full of life. But there are places which to which life uh, is coming back very slowly, and we don't know whether it will come back fully as it was bef- before the war. But this is what Russian invasion, Russian crime of invasion, makes to Ukraine. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova. Don't forget to support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also send your donations to our humanitarian missions to paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. 